Question. What happens when a Boeing 767 runs out of fuel 41,000 feet above the ground? Most people think it would just fall out of the sky like a rock, but others think it would basically turn into the world's biggest glider. Well, allow me to tell you the amazing story of an Air Canada Boeing 767 that ran out of fuel in the middle of a scheduled passenger flight almost eight miles above the rugged wilderness of Ontario, and glided all the way to the ground only to encounter a crowd of families and kids having a Sunday hangout on the runway. Let me remind you that a plane without fuel can't go around and make multiple landing attempts. They had no choice but to land that plane on that runway. So what happened? Welcome back to Air Scare Stories. Today I'll be telling you the legendary tale of Air Canada Flight 143, better known as the Gimli Glider. It's July 23, 1987, and Air Canada Flight 143 is scheduled to make another domestic passenger flight between Montreal and Edmonton, Canada, with a brief layover in Ottawa. The aircraft to be used for this flight is a Boeing 767 that's barely five months old. It's a new plane with new technology that eliminates the need for a second officer or flight engineer in the cockpit. Despite the plane's massive size, only two pilots are needed to fly it, thanks to its state-of-the-art navigational equipment. The captain on this flight is 48-year-old Robert Pearson, known to friends and family as Bob, who's accumulated an impressive 15,000 hours of flying time in his career so far. He's being assisted by First Officer Maurice Quintal, who's 36 years old with the respectable 7,000 flight hours under his belt. Also on board the plane are 61 passengers and 8 cabin crew for a grand total of 69 people. The flight has already completed its first leg from Montreal to Ottawa, and is now climbing out of Ottawa heading for its final stop in Edmonton. As the plane reaches its designated cruising altitude, the passengers are settling into their seats for the long journey ahead. While cruising steadily at 41,000 feet over Red Lake, Ontario, an ominous warning light goes off in the cockpit. It indicates low fuel pressure in the plane's left fuel pump, but the pilots aren't actually too concerned because they're already aware that there's a problem with the fuel system. So they just assume that the fuel pump on that side has finally failed and they just turn it off. They also know that while they're in level flight, even without the fuel pumps working, they can just trust gravity to feed fuel into the plane's two engines. They turn their attention back to flying the plane, but are soon interrupted by another fuel pressure alarm. This time it's on the right side. Of course, now this does cause them to worry a little bit, and the situation gets even worse when they get another alarm indicating that the left engine has just died. They quickly begin to explore their options and communicate the situation with air traffic control. They discuss where the closest available place they could attempt a single engine landing might be. With the left engine shut down, all they had was the right engine, which was still functioning despite the fuel pressure alarm they'd just received. After discussing their options with air traffic control, they decide the best course of action is to divert to Winnipeg. But before they can even input the changes to the flight computer, they're once again interrupted by another warning sound. This time, it's a sound that they'd never been trained to deal with, because what it indicated was thought to be so unlikely to occur that airline training programs considered it a waste of time. They hear a long, drawn-out bong and then the eerie silence of an airplane that has no working engines. They were now at about 35,000 feet, with warning signals going off and neither of their two engines working. This is the last thing anyone would expect on a new and highly advanced plane like the Boeing 767. They quickly start looking through their checklists to find the section on flying with both engines out, but with a sinking feeling they soon realize that there is no such checklist. Like I said, this was literally never expected to happen. With both engines inoperable, not only had they lost all forward thrust, they'd also lost all electrical power on the plane, which meant that their fancy virtual instruments were all gone. 
Their glass cockpit displays simply went blank, like an array of expensive but very dead tablet computers. Remember earlier I said that the 767 was a new airplane with high-tech equipment? Well, beyond that, the 767 was also one of the first planes with an electronic flight instrument system that operated entirely on electricity generated by the aircraft's engines, not mechanical power like most previous airplane instruments had worked. In other words, no engines, no power, and no power, no instruments. There was an emergency battery backup system, but this only left them with a magnetic compass, an artificial horizon, an airspeed indicator, and an altimeter, and that's it. Crucially, they were left without a working vertical speed indicator, which would tell them how long they could glide for without engine power. And as you can imagine, that's pretty important information when you're at the controls of the world's most expensive glider and you've got almost 70 lives in the palm of your hands. Besides the flight instruments, the hydraulics, which are responsible for manipulating the plane's control surfaces, also relied on electrical power to work. But thankfully, the 767's engineers had thought of a way around this. They had designed a backup generator in the form of a ram air turbine, or RAT, that generates power from the flow of air around the fuselage like a tiny windmill. With this deployed, the pilots now have some basic control over the plane, even without the engines running and supplying power to the hydraulic pumps. At this point, the pilots are still planning to divert to Winnipeg, except now they'd have to find a way to glide all the way there with no engine power. Now you have to understand that gliding a plane as large as the 767 over such a long distance is no easy task. You need to be extremely skilled and confident to do it, or things could end up really badly. Remember, with no engines, you get only one chance to land, no do-overs. But luckily for the passengers and crew of Air Canada Flight 143, Captain Pearson just happened to be an accomplished glider pilot. And although he hadn't necessarily used his gliding skills on a plane as big as the 767, he had no choice now but to put those skills to the ultimate test. He quickly got to work and determined that the best speed to fly the 767 for the maximum range was 220 knots. Next was calculating if it would even be possible to reach Winnipeg from their current position. The first officer used their altitude and distance traveled, which was supplied to them by air traffic control in Winnipeg using the plane's radar echo, and determined that they really only had a very slim chance of making it there. They'd already lost about 5,000 feet in 10 nautical miles, which made reaching Winnipeg very unrealistic. They needed to find a closer landing spot, and soon. In their earlier interactions with air traffic controllers, they'd actually been given two options. Winnipeg, which was the one preferred by Captain Pearson, and the old Royal Canadian Air Force Base in Gimli, Manitoba. Not knowing very much about Gimli, the pilots had chosen Winnipeg. But they no longer had the luxury of choosing which airport to land at. It had to be the old decommissioned Gimli station. With the help of air traffic control, they change course and head towards their new final destination. As Captain Pearson quietly maneuvered the plane closer to the old Gimli air station, the crew realized that their reduced airspeed, which had been intended to achieve the maximum glide distance possible, had now left them too high to land safely. They also feared that the rapid descent they'd have to make in order to reach the runway's threshold would lead to an excessive landing speed and that it might cause them to overrun or careen off the end of the runway. The captain thinks for a moment and then proposes performing a forward slip maneuver in order to help slow the plane down quickly. Putting an airplane into a forward slip is done by banking or rolling into the wind and then turning the rudder in the opposite direction. It exposes the entire length of the fuselage to the oncoming air and is a way of creating a huge amount of drag very quickly, resulting in a rapid loss of altitude and or airspeed. Now, a forward slip isn't a maneuver that's usually recommended for a plane as big as the 767 because it has the potential to slow it down so much and so fast that it could easily lead to a wing stall and a nosedive into the ground. 
but the captain determines that he really has no other choice and goes ahead with the forward slip. This does manage to reduce the plane's airspeed, but also, unexpectedly, was making the plane's controls less and less responsive to Captain Pearson's inputs. When the plane entered the forward slip, it disrupted the smooth airflow around the fuselage, making it turbulent and severely reducing the rat's ability to generate power. This is something that Captain Pearson hadn't considered, since he'd never piloted a glider whose controls depended on the power generated by a tiny windmill sticking out the bottom before. With the decreased power, the pilots had only limited control over the plane, which was now flying sideways with no engine power and hurtling toward a decommissioned runway that the captain was completely unfamiliar with. The limited power also made it impossible for the pilots to extend the flaps and slats of the plane, which would have helped to reduce the stall speed and increase the lift coefficient of the wings, allowing for a slower and safer landing. So you may be asking yourself now, was this crazy sideways crab maneuver really the only option they had for slowing the plane down? Well, not exactly, but the other option was for them to make a complete 360 degree turn to reduce speed and altitude. But this would have been even more risky, given that they didn't really know their exact altitude, or if they could bring the plane all the way around before hitting the ground. So that was out. As they approached the Air Force Station at Gimli, First Officer Kintal moved the landing gear lever to the down position in order to extend the gear for landing, but nothing happened. He frantically looked through the quick reference handbook for any references to landing gear freefall or anything like that, but he couldn't find anything. But just before touchdown, he flipped the alternate gear extension switch, which resulted in an abrupt and jarring gravity drop. Now this is exactly what it sounds like. The cover doors would simply open and let the massive landing gear fall into place under its own weight. Unfortunately, however, the nose wheel failed to lock in place, meaning there was a good chance it would just collapse on touchdown. But at this point, there was nothing they could do about that. With the runway finally in view, the pilots only had a brief moment to sigh in relief before realizing that something was off. They thought they could see some distant movement of something down the long stretch of runway. It took just a few seconds for them to realize what they were seeing, and it sent a chill up both of their spines. They could see that crowds of people and families had gathered around and that they were having a drag race on the runway. Unaware to the flight crew, as well as the controllers at Winnipeg, a section of the long decommissioned Air Force Station at Gimli had been converted into a racetrack complex, which included a race course, a go-kart track, and a drag strip where friends and families would get together to hang out on weekends. Although First Officer Kintal had actually served at Gimli as a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, even he didn't know of these developments, which didn't happen until long after he'd left. To make matters even worse for the flight crew, on that particular day there was an additional race going on at Gimli, hosted by the Winnipeg Sports Car Club meaning the runway was even more crowded than usual and was surrounded by cars, vans, and campers full of people. As if it wasn't bad enough for Air Canada 143 to be speeding toward a runway full of cars and people, it was doing so silently since its engines weren't running. This meant that the people on the ground would have virtually no chance of hearing the plane coming and would only see it when it was almost already on top of them, giving them no time to escape. In order to avoid crashing into the crowd of people at the far end of the runway, the captain decided he had to put the plane down as close to the threshold as possible. Of course, this meant that their stopping distance would be severely decreased, but what other choice did he have? He wasn't about to float leisurely down the runway and risk plowing his giant airplane into a crowd of kids and families. Once the wheels touched down, the captain applied full braking power, blowing out two of the tires and causing the plane to start skidding down the runway. The unlocked nose gear assembly couldn't withstand the impact of the landing, and it collapsed almost immediately. As you'd probably guess, this meant that the nose of the plane slammed to the ground, bouncing and scraping its way down the runway. 
All things considered, this could have been a very bad thing, resulting in casualties or even starting a fire beneath the plane. But the additional friction created between the collapsed nose section and the runway actually ended up being critical to helping slow the plane down. On top of that, about halfway down the runway, the drag strip's guardrail appeared down the center line, and the plane's nose began to bump and bang into some of its wooden pylons. But thinking quickly, Captain Pearson applied a stronger braking force on the right, causing the plane to straddle the guardrail between the nose and the left main landing gear. They finally managed to bring the 767 to a stop less than 100 feet from the crowd of people, cars, tents, and campers. Somehow, this amazing flight crew had been able to glide for 17 full minutes in a massive airliner with no fuel and very little power, and successfully landed on a decommissioned runway bustling with cars and people, and not a single person received serious injuries. The pilots would later state that they came so close to hitting two boys who were riding their bikes on the runway that they could see the terrified expressions on their faces as the plane came to a skidding stop just a few meters from them. No serious injuries were recorded among the passengers or crew members either. Most of the minor injuries only occurred while the passengers were exiting the plane because since the nose had collapsed to the ground, the plane's tail was now elevated. Thus, the exit slides at the rear of the plane weren't long enough to reach the ground, making for a pretty precarious drop for some of the passengers. Imagine surviving a potential plane crash only to break your ass going down the emergency slide. Ironically, the failure of the front landing gear to lock into position and the existence of the racetrack guardrail, which would have been considered serious hazards in any other situation, actually led to saving Air Canada 143 from overrunning the runway and potentially killing some of the passengers and crew. Okay, so we've now heard the amazing story of how the heroic crew saved the lives of all those on board as well as those on the ground. But what actually happened to cause all this in the first place? How could both the left and right fuel pumps fail on this brand new airplane? Did they actually run out of fuel? And how could the pilots have remained so disinterested when the first warning signs went off? To understand all this, we have to backtrack a little. The day before the incident, an aircraft technician in Edmonton ran a battery of routine maintenance checks on the plane, which included checking its Fuel Quantity Indication System, or FQIS. This is a computer system that calculates the amount of remaining fuel in the plane's tanks and then displays it on the monitors in the cockpit. But the FQIS actually failed this maintenance check, which resulted in the fuel gauges in the cockpit going blank. Now this wouldn't normally be a problem, they'd just have to swap the defective computer out with a working one, except for the fact that there were no spare parts available in Edmonton, and the minimum equipment list, or MEL, states that an airliner cannot take off without working fuel gauges. So drawing from his experience with a similar incident that happened three weeks earlier, and knowing that the FQIS computer operates with two redundant channels for safety, the engineer pulls the circuit breaker for the second channel. This disables it, but it leaves the first channel operational and allows the fuel gauge readings to come back on in the cockpit. He then tags the pulled circuit breaker and makes an entry in the maintenance log so that the next engineer would be aware of what he'd done, and the plane flies from Edmonton to Montreal without incident. In Montreal, the pilots would hand command of the plane over to a new crew, the crew that would end up having all the trouble and landing at Gimli. The information about the disabled FQIS channel is communicated to Captain Pearson and First Officer Kintal. And they're also told that the fuel in the plane's tanks would have to be measured with the fuel measuring sticks under the wings, known as drip sticks, since there was only one FQIS channel in operation now. There in Montreal, another technician is reading through the maintenance log, and he sees the note that the tech in Edmonton had left about the fuel gauges and the circuit breaker. But it's a bit confusing and cryptic to him, so he decides to investigate the faulty FQIS system himself. 
He sees the pulled circuit breaker and pushes it back in, which re-engages the second channel on the FQIS, but of course causes the fuel gauges to go blank again. But before he can disable the breaker again and bring the fuel gauges back to life, he gets called outside to perform the manual fuel level check with the dripstick, and then just forgets to return to the cockpit to deal with the FQIS system. On top of that, he also forgets to remove the tag from the circuit breaker, which makes it look like it's been pulled when in reality it wasn't. Later, the crew in Montreal enters the cockpit and sees that the fuel gauges are off, which they assume is what the Edmonton crew were trying to tell them earlier. So they check the minimum equipment list, which says that they can't fly without fuel gauges as we learned earlier. But Captain Pearson, in another misunderstanding, thought that he'd read that it would be okay to fly as long as the amount of fuel on board before takeoff was confirmed manually with the dripsticks. Due to the complications with the FQIS system, Captain Pearson decided that he wanted extra fuel brought on board, enough to reach Edmonton from Montreal without having to refuel during their stopover in Ottawa. Now, at that time, Air Canada was moving away from using the Imperial system of measurements in their fuel calculations in favor of the metric system. The 767 they were using was actually the first plane in the Air Canada fleet to use the metric system. So I'm sure you can see where this is going. The refueler who checked the dripstick values reported the fuel density in pounds per liter, which was still the standard for all other Air Canada planes, but not for this one. The 767's computers were expecting the value in kilograms per liter, but the cockpit crew entered the value into the computer without converting it to metric first. This meant that the plane left Montreal with way less fuel than it needed to complete the trip to Edmonton. Incredibly, Captain Pearson actually made the same mistake again during their stopover in Ottawa. Although he insisted that they check the fuel level numbers at least three times to be absolutely sure they had enough on board, the result never changed because they kept using the same wrong conversion metric. Their refueling sheets showed that they had 11,430 liters of fuel on board, which the pilots incorrectly converted to 20,400 kilograms. In reality, they had 20,400 pounds of fuel on board, which is only about 9,250 kilos, about half of what they actually needed to make it to Edmonton. This also explains why they weren't that worried when they first entered the cockpit and saw the fuel gauges off. They believed there was a known computer problem, but that they already made sure there was plenty of fuel on board. In the wake of this incident, both of the pilots had their licenses suspended, but eventually they were reinstated and they went on to fly again. Two years later, they were awarded the Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship by the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, the world governing body for general aviation, aerobatics, and gliding. Their success in landing the huge airliner with no fuel, no power, and very little control was lauded by the general public and became the stuff of legend among the piloting community. As for the plane itself, within two days of the emergency landing at Gimli, the 767 was patched up and then flown to Winnipeg for more extensive repairs, after which it continued to operate up until 2008. This is one of my favorite aviation stories to tell because one, no one got hurt, and two, the pilots managed to turn a potentially catastrophic situation around using only good old-fashioned flying skills. On the other hand, it could have been avoided completely with just a tiny bit more care and attention to the fuel calculations by the pilots. But what do you think? Were the pilots incompetent or were they heroes? What punishment do you think they deserved, if any? Leave your comments down below. Right now, it takes me about a month to research, write, film, and edit each video, but I'd really love to put up new ones more often. If you'd like to help me achieve my goal and see more videos more often, please consider donating on Patreon. I'd be really grateful. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you on the next Air Scare Stories.